this week on the Back Table Podcast. So I'm just to take a take a minute to address that, OJ. And yeah. you know, you mentioned that your general role in, in testis cancer management is to kind of do the orchiectomy, go up the ultrasound, get the markers, then and get your oncologist involved. And you know, of course, carboplatin is a guideline directed option, but in the vast majority of patients, they're going to be overtreated and they're going to be exposed to the risks, which are not zero. If they relapse, they have different relapse types of behavior. And I would say at, you know, most major U.S. centers, that's Memorial Sloan Kettering, where I trained, Indiana, um, et cetera, observation is going to be the option. So I would, you know, I would encourage you to you know, touch base with your oncologist and you know, re revisit this. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Podcast, uh, your source of all things urology. You can find all our previous episodes of our forecast on iTunes, Spotify, and backtable.com. Uh, this is your host, uh, Dr. Jose Silva Oche, as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today. We have Dr. Aritia Bagrodia uh, from UT Southwestern Department of Urology. He's a uh, urology oncologist. Welcome back, Didi. Thanks for having me, Oche. You know, we had last time, we talked about bladder cancer. Today, we're going to talk about testicular cancer. Where are you at now? In the office? Back in the office. Two small kids. For any of <laughs> peace and quiet, this is going to be, this is going to be the best option. Do you have any, any, to do any work or anything there or just doing the podcast? Just podcast, a little, little bit of here and there, nothing, nothing too intense. Okay. So let, let's get into it. Uh, so today we're going to talk about testicular cancer. Didi, I know that this is uh, a topic that is very dear to you. We'll talk about that a little bit further. Uh, so, so let's just start with, with a basic patient. He goes to your office. He's feeling a testicular mass. Uh, what's the next step? Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously starting out with a, with a comprehensive history and physical understanding risk factors, history of undescended testicle, family history of testis cancer, any issues or problems with fertility coming into this. Are they single um, in a relationship? Any previous children is going to be mandatory. And let's say this is going to be a generally unremarkable young man, somewhere between the ages of 18 and 38. Exam notable only for a testicular mass, you know, per guidelines, AUA guidelines, EAU guidelines, SCCA guidelines. The first next step is going to be to obtain a scrotal ultrasound as well as serum tumor markers. Okay, so you do the ultrasound, you have the tumor markers. Let's talk about different pathologies that you can see in the ultrasound that are not cancer. Everybody asks about microlithiasis, so, so calcifications in the testicles. What do you do with these patients? What's your next step? What, what do you counsel them on? Yeah, yeah. I would say that microlithiasis is something that's oftentimes a, a source of concern for patients, for radiologists, and, and certainly for, for treating um, providers as well. And the first thing you want to do is get an assessment of any risk factors. So if the patient has any evidence of a personal history of testis cancer, history of cryptorchidism, family history of testis cancer, or issues with fertility, then you have to kind of take the microlithiasis a little bit more seriously. On the opposite end of the spectrum, if they're just identified incidentally, no further follow-up is required and the patient can be reassured. And there's a direct uh, statement in the AUA guidelines uh, along these along these lines. Now, if they do have any of the risk factors, you're going to want to follow them. 
So of course, the, the first thing is going to be self-exams. And then there's never been a study outlining, you know, whether six-month ultrasounds for the first year followed by annually would be the best way to go. That's personally what I do. It's a conservative strategy. So that's, again, monthly self-exam. Mm-hmm. You yep. the ultrasound? Okay. Is that yep. for only people with risk factors or everybody? That's going to be patient with risk factors. If they don't have risk factors, you know, they're pretty much not at an increased risk of developing a cancer. I know while I was in residency, there were like two big, I had both of them, they, they practice in different pediatric urology, sorry. They, they did residency fellowship in different part of the States. One of them did yearly ultrasound for pediatric patients. The other one just was, was good with the self-examination. So for pediatric population, will you do something differently? Generally, no. Of course, the anxiety sometimes is a little bit higher among uh, children and, and parents of children. And in the absence of high quality data, I think you also do need to synthesize the patient anxiety. Our job certainly is to explain to them that this is not a independent risk factor for developing a cancer and to make them comfortable with that. But if you sense that the, that the patient or the family may need a little bit more reassurance in addition to our counseling, I do think, you know, getting an ultrasound at, at six months or one year just to kind of help them understand that there's nothing to worry about. I, I see very little downside for that. Okay. So let's go back to our patient. So we, we have this patient, uh, the ultrasound suggests that there's a mass, a solid mass in the testicle. Uh, you do the tumor markers. Let's say the tumor markers are, are negative or, I mean, it really doesn't matter. Would you do a, then a, an x-ray or, or a CAT scan of the abdomen? And the chest? So ideally, I would like to get my imaging prior to any surgical intervention, just because you're going to have inflammation, you're going to have recovery, and sometimes you can have some nonspecific nodes afterwards. But that being said, oftentimes insurance companies won't pay for a CT scan in the absence of an actual cancer diagnosis. So I'll order it. And, um, you know, this is my personal practice pattern. For my baseline, I always get a CT scan, chest, abdomen, and pelvis. You want to know, are there any kind of non-specific small pulmonary nodules? You want to really have an idea of, of kind of the comprehensive setup before you embark on whatever strategy that's going to be, whether that's surveillance or any type of additional treatment. So I will order it, you know, certainly if their tumor markers are elevated and it's fairly pathognomonic, it's not that hard with insurance. Sometimes it can be a, a bit of a, a contentious issue. It's so you're doing the tumor markers at the same time as the ultrasound? Yeah, so the so the tumor markers need to happen pre-orchiectomy. You know, that's okay. pretty much a guideline direct statement. You want to have a baseline again. You know, for instance, if you have somebody who's got an AFP elevation and then their path comes back pure seminoma and you never got that information that could kind of, you know, impact your management. Yeah, I have had patients that they're already asleep in the OR and I've have checked that maybe they did the LDH, they didn't, something's missing. So they have to, I tell to the, the anesthetist, hey, could you please draw some blood? Cause I need that information. So maybe doing that, how are you doing, doing it at the same time as the ultrasound, it makes, I mean, the, the patient will make sure that, that they have the lab by the time the surgery happens and we don't have to run into that problem. So, okay. So, and is there a place for the MRI in the testicle for diagnosing difficult masses or, or some masses that the radiologists might mention that they're not completely solid. Are you using MRIs? Yeah. So, you know, first off, if you have an equivocal lesion, you know, some marker negative, small, hypervascular, hypocoic, you're not sold that it's a cancer, 
the first thing I would do is just repeat imaging in six to eight weeks. The likelihood of you, of you going from a localized stage to a metastatic stage is extremely low. And this is a common theme in the AUA guideline as well as the EAU guideline. It's better to get it right and take your time than to jump into it and, and you know, either overtreat or mistreat. So the first thing I'm going to do for an equivocal mass is actually repeat imaging in six to eight weeks. If that still looks unequivocal, either you can continue on a surveillance program. If there's something that's evolving, changing, that's got you a little bit worried, that may be a role for something a little bit more advanced, like an MRI or a contrast enhanced ultrasound. But these are going to be very much reader dependent, institution experience dependent, and I, and I wouldn't use it as your initial modality. Okay. So yeah, so for example, in, in where I uh, work at, we don't have that ultrasound enhanced. I mean, the, 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 the contrasting has ultrasound, but the MRI that, yeah, I definitely have done it a couple of times for those small masses. I haven't made any decisions based on the MRI. I usually, you just like you do, I just fo will follow the patient with ultrasound. If it's becomes a little bit bigger or painful, then I'll, I'll, I'll see if I could do a partial or whatever. So let's say, so you, you already tell patient, Hey, we're going to do the orchectomy. Is there something else? Are they doing tests of like sperm retrieval prior to the, to the surgery, any other labs, like testosterone labs, things like that? Yeah. So, uh, excellent points. Um, a couple of things, you know, starting out with the way I kind of counsel patients to, Hey, listen, the testes do two things. They make testosterone and they make sperm. In terms of pre-orchiectomy testosterone levels, those are generally similar in men with testis cancer as though as healthy controls. Post-orchiectomy, you will see hypogonadism in about 10 to 20% of patients. Now, whether that translates into clinical hypogonadism is, you know, patient specific, but I definitely talk to them. And in Texas, that's actually a mandatory part of the consent. The other aspect of this is, of course, it's sperm production. Now, you see subfertility or infertility with the baseline risk of oligospermia in about half of men presenting with testis cancer. And about 10 to 30% of men would have experienced infertility issues coming into it. Fortunately, post-orchiectomy paternity rates are about 90%. So generally, they'll kind of even out. Practically, I think it's important that you examine the contralateral testicle. You ask about any issues or problems with fertility. And um, if, they're, if they're worried about it, if their contralateral testicle isn't normal, if they've got any type of syndromic type of features, then I would have a very low threshold to perform pre-orchiectomy, semen analysis, and cryopreservation. A baseline testosterone, less inclined to obtain that just because I think it can be a source of anxiety in the absence of clinical hypogonadism, but certainly afterwards, it's going to be something that I am counseling them about. Okay. Sounds good. So in terms of, of the procedure per se, uh, are you doing also, uh, are you counseling them with testicular implants prior to the procedure? Do you offer them? I, I use coloplast. I usually do it at the time of the surgery. Is there, I mean, do you do it afterwards? When is a good time to, to, to offer it, I guess? And, and, and if we're going to offer it, then do it. Excellent point, OJ. As a, someone who sees patients that largely have had their orchiectomy, one of the things that we run across most frequently is that they were never offered a prosthesis. So a placement of a prosthesis is associated with better self-image, body image profiles. There have been multiple studies to show that many of the feelings of loss, of uneasiness, and of shame can be mitigated by placing a prosthesis. And unequivocally, it's going to be easier 
to place it at the time of orchiectomy. This myth of placing it at a different time is is really just that it's an old wives' tale. So I also use a coloplast. The majority of patients are going to use a large. It is something that oftentimes needs to be pre-arranged. Generally, the prostheses are not kept on the shelf at many hospitals. So you do want to know who your rep is and have them come in. Practically, that may not always be possible, but if you're not thinking about it at that initial consultation, you're going to miss the window. You're going to miss the opportunity. Yeah, I found that, I mean, usually the patients that are saying yes to the implants are younger patients in the 20s, single patients, and they still want to have that feeling of those testicles. Patients already married with kids, they probably don't care. They will say, don't, don't worry about it. I don't care. Is that the same reaction to you in Texas or? Yeah, I would say generally it's kind of the same. As yeah. you know, you know we, we can really impact that decision as well. And everybody's a little bit different. And if it's never offered and they don't know about it, they're not going to have an opinion. Typically, it is the young single guys that are more interested and the older married folks are less interested. Okay. So, so we have this patient, we're going for surgery, definitely a, a inguinal incision versus a scrotal incision. C can you go through the process? Uh, I, I, my first case that I did after residency two years afterwards, I was a little lost. I mean, I, I forgot the anatomy. I really don't know where, where I was. I had to do a big incision to find the, the spermatic cord. What's your process? Can you talk about the landmarks? How you will go over the surgery? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, certainly I would say while orchiectomy is not necessarily the most complex surgery that we do, it, it can get disorienting and it can be tricky. Obese patients, previous hernia repairs, previous uh, undescended testicle repairs, these can all make it rather difficult. If there's anything even remotely complex, if they're a little big, I'll put them in a slightly flexed position just to kind of open up the ring. Then once they're under anesthesia, before prepping, I will actually palpate the ring, the, the external ring, which is always deeper than, than anticipated, you know, kind of just lateral to the pubic tubercle and I'll mark it at that point, even prior to prepping. And I like doing this before prepping, just because, you know, doing that physical exam ostensibly could, could seed something. Then I'll generally try to make my incision essentially with the inferior medial most part of the incision just at the level of the ring. And you want to come through the skin, come through the subcutaneous fat, clearly identify scarpas, and it's mandatory in a virgin case as well as a reoperative case that you really see that external oblique fascia and you have it properly cleared off. You can't compromise on that. And you can get lost. And if you get lost, there's some high dollar real straighting, including the femoral artery and vein, which are not too far below. Then once I've got my obliques well cleared off, I'll actually gently tug on the testicle, really see my core sliding just at the level of the ring, and then I'll open the ring with the right angle in a retrograde fashion. Identify the ilioingual nerve, dissect it off. Then I personally will uh, take two debakies and tease the cord off of the shelving edges of the external oblique fascia. I grab it with the Babcock, digitally come around it, put up quarter inch pen rows around it, which is again, preferable, not mandatory. In theory, you're preventing any retrograde tumor seeding when you actually ultimately deliver the testicle. And um, I would say in a reoperative case, a very tricky case, I don't think it's heresy to actually deliver the testicle, take down your goober tract attachments, and then 
dissect your cord off retrograde. Regardless, after that, you take your cream ester fibers down. And I really do try to get this to the level of the internal ring where I can actually see my peritoneal reflection. Hey, Niri, let, let, let me ask, ask you a question. So is there any study that if you don't do the high ligation or early vascular control, sorry, are there, okay, is there going to be seating or is it just theoretical potential? You know, I mean, I always do it because that's how, how I was told to, but is there data that if you don't do it, you're going to have uh, seating? It's theoretical and I don't want to minimize this important aspect of it. You know, at the end of the day, your risk of having in transit cord metastases is about 5%. Okay. So to see a meaningful difference in a study, you're going to have to have thousands of patients that receive other high or they did it. But if you're lost and in my opinion, delivering the testicle, finding your core, tracing it back, and then securing it is probably better than digging around and, and getting into trouble. So once I'm at the level of the ring, I'll personally put an O-silk down right at the level of the ring. This is going to be kind of a security sitch. And in addition, if they do ultimately have a non-seminoma tumor requiring RPLND, whether that's chemo-naive or post-chemo, you've got a landmark to make sure that you've completely excised the cord. Then I separate the cord into two hemicords. Usually that's the vas and connective tissue surrounding it. And then the, ve the vessels in the other half, I'll put a 2-O-silk and then a 2-O-sutral leg on each side to make sure I'm completely clamped, send the specimen off. I put a Raytech in underneath when I'm cutting the specimen just to make sure if there are any tumor cells within the cord that I'm not spilling. Check for hemostasis one more time. Many times the patients will have a uh, direct abdominal hernia. You can use some ethabon sutures just to do a Bassini type repair while you're there. Fashion close with two of vicryl subcutaneous tissue with three of vicryl, then I'll generally do monocryl with scrotal support. And typically, Tylenol and ibuprofen would be perfectly fine for pain control. So uh, after you do that, I mean, if you were going to do the implant, would you do it then at that stage that everything is over, that you will bring the, the scrotum uh, inside and then just pull it through? Yeah. So I actually um, would put the implant in prior to closing my external oblique fascia just to give myself a little bit extra room. So, you know, once I've done the orchiectomy, change gloves, irrigate the field with the antibiotic solution prepare your prosthesis. If you're not familiar with it, it's certainly much, much easier than preparing, say, an IPP, for instance, but generally your reps could come in and it's, and it's not too challenging. What I will do is, um, you know, kind of try to preserve the neck going into the scrotum. I place my prosthesis in there and then I'll take a ovicral on a CT needle and try to close that neck and the tab stays up. I don't suture it down into the into the dependent most area of the testicle. That's just the way I've done it. I think there's some various different approaches here, obviously, but essentially you're, you're going to get the, the prosthesis down in there. You're going to close that neck. I'll vigorously check to make sure it's not going to migrate cranially into the um, prepubertal space. And then that's pretty much the prosthesis displacement. So yeah, you usually put it in the most dependent part of the, of the scrotum. I mean, any reason why or? Yeah, I just feel like the, chances of it eroding through become a little higher if you tack it down okay. and I'll have the patient's manual ma manually manipulate it down as uh, as a part of their post-op. Have you seen extrusion? Fortunately not. Okay. I mean, certainly if a patient's going to be receiving chemotherapy, having a surgical complication is a catastrophe. So, you know, whether that's bleeding, whether that's an infection, et cetera. So I, I definitely, you know, take it pretty seriously. 
And if that was to delay their care, that would be pretty unacceptable. Okay. So then you, you will see him two weeks afterwards just to see how it is, discuss the pathology. So for me, after, after this point, two weeks after, and we discuss the pathology, then for me, my next step will be to send it to the oncologist and then for further treatment in, in terms of regarding whether it was chemo, uh, radiation, or, or RPLMD, whatever they decide, I'll, I'll leave that to the oncologist. But in your case, I mean, you're, you're, you're all the oncologist. So what's, what's your next step for you? Yeah. So first thing is, you know, when they're leaving, oftentimes it's been a pretty fast moving train, ultrasound, markers, primary care, urologist, orchiectomy, and then it's bam, everything stops. You're at home, you're recovering, there's no new information coming and you're kind of freaking out that you have cancer and you're, you know, 22 years old. So the first thing I'll do is I'll tell the patients that, Hey, this is normal. This is expected. You're going to have a lot of anxiety and I'll try to actually see if they want to be set up with cancer center support services, whether that's support groups, et cetera, because I think that's massively important at this. uh, And I think that's something that we really should, you know, kind of stay on the front end. So then at their, at their post-operative visits, you've got the path. And of course you want your post-orchiectomy tumor markers. One of the most common things that I see done inappropriately is that you haven't followed the markers out until they're nadir levels. And you've got a stage one patients, their AFPs, you know, still a little bit elevated and they get diagnosed as having metastatic disease. But going back to your question, um, OJ, the first thing is going to be to have them comprehensively staged, CT scan, chest, abdomen, and pelvis, as well as their post-orchitamine, the deer tumor markers. I literally had a guy who started out with an AFP at 48,000. It took three months for him to get down back to normal but he never had metastases. I could, I could get, uh, nearly guarantee you that if this patient was seen at the outside, when he came back two weeks later and his AFP was 10,000, they would have said, hey, you've got metastatic disease, time to pickle you with some chemo. So you've got to follow the tumor markers out. And um, at this point, they're staged. And you know maybe starting out with stage one seminomas. So they have no evidence of metastases. We review every one of these cases in a multidisciplinary tumor board, we review the pathology, review the imaging. And, you know, if they're stage one, nearly certainly, I would say, let's, let's keep an eye on you with the surveillance program. So, Didi, everybody goes to a tumor board? For you every guys? patient. Every patient. Every patient with a cancer at your institution, everybody goes for a tumor board. So, every testis cancer patient goes to a tumor board. Okay. Okay. You know, like garden variety, prostate cancer patient, or a bladder cancer patient, not necessarily, but anything even remotely complex, we have you know, tumor boards almost every week. I, I kind of arrange the germ cell tumor, tumor board, and we have medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, pathologists, radiologists every time. And, you know, there's a lot of good data that expert care, multidisciplinary care, high volume care is directly associated with outcomes, especially in testis cancer. That's, that's awesome. And definitely it reassures the patient that they're having the best option in terms of the treatment. So, so that's good. So, you know, kind of maybe just walking through it, OJ. So a stage one seminoma, I kind of, you know, run through again. Hey, you, you're, you've got one testicle, the testicles make sperm and they make, um, and they make, uh, testosterone. Here's kind of signs and symptoms that we'll be continually monitoring for. I really try to emphasize to them if they don't have a primary care physician, it's, it's mandatory that they have one, you know, the, the, Downstream side effects of hypogonadism include depression, low self-esteem, loss of libido, 
And then even, you know, kind of more medical things like osteoporosis, lipid metabolism, insulin resistance, sarcopenia down the way. So I really try to take this opportunity to, to get them plugged in. Then I, you know, I don't do any kind of risk adapted management of seminoma patients, whether that's size, whether that's really testes invasion, you know, unless they are absolutely pushing for some type of adjuvant treatment, which would be either carboplatin or radiotherapy, I'm going to push them for surveillance. The risk of relapse is, you know, 10 to 12%. I'll tell them that about 90% of these take place in the first two years. And after that, they're generally home free. We'll also want to just, you know, mention self-exams once monthly, set a reminder. But for stage one seminoma, that's pretty much going to be it. Yeah. So usually at my institution, they they do one one uh, dose or, or, or one, one session of the carbo instead of the observation. That's, I think that's the way to go, what, what they're choosing. Patients that have contraindication for chemotherapy or radiation, they will go, they will go to observation. And, and they're doing good, but definitely uh, it's good, good to hear from, from, from your perspective, what would you recommend? That's why what, what we're talking about this. So let's continue with the, with the other stages. Yeah. So I'm just to take a, take a minute to address that, OJ. And, yeah. you know, you mentioned that your, your general role in, in testis cancer management is to kind of do the orchiectomy, go up the ultrasound, get the markers, then, and get your oncologist involved. And, you know, of course, carboplatin is a guideline directed option, but in the vast majority of patients, they're going to be overtreated and they're going to be exposed to the risks, which are not zero. If they relapse, they have different relapse types of behavior. And I would say at, you know, most major U.S. centers, that's Memorial Sloan Kettering, where I trained, Indiana, et cetera, observation is going to be the option. So I would, you know, I would encourage you to touch base with your oncologist and, Definitely. you know, re revisit this. All right. So stage two seminomas, you know, this is kind of an evolving area. So just stage two germinal tumors, broadly speaking. If somebody comes in with a equivocal node, you know, let's say one centimeter in the short axis, a solitary node, you don't necessarily want to jump in. We know from surgical series that if you go in and do an RPLNT, 20 to 30% of those patients are actually going to be pathological and zero. So again, going back to this notion of being slow, being deliberate and make sure we're not over-treating. But let's say and usually when I, what I mean explicitly by that is I'll usually repeat imaging in six to eight weeks. And I would always repeat a CT scan of the chest to make sure they don't have any metastases as well as the pelvis and their tumor markers. But a stage two seminoma, if they're low volume, and that's going to be, you know, one node less than three centimeters, really all options are on the, are on the table. And that's going to be radiotherapy or good risk-directed chemotherapy with either BEP times three or EP times four. And I would say that there has been resurgent interest in primary RPLND in this setting as well. There's two large studies, one out of Germany, one in the U.S. Our institution was the fourth highest enrolling site for basically RPLND for low-volume seminoma. Early results are excellent, and you can potentially mitigate some of the side effects associated with chemotherapy or radiotherapy. With that being said, you know, the standard of care options still are going to be radiotherapy or chemotherapy. If they've got bulky disease, 2C, multifocal disease, you're pretty much going to be best off going with chemotherapy. And if it's limited, you know, radiation would be an option. The and most important thing is that all options are available at your institution and presented to the patient. And Didi, for, for patients that have uh, teratoma in their pathology, would that change? 
uh, your approach, would you be more inclined to do an RPO and B on those patients or, or, or it really doesn't matter. You, you will do a chemotherapy trial and see how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. So excellent question. So moving on into kind of non-sylmanoma landscape, if they're a stage 1A, so no lymphovascular invasion, nearly all those patients, I would advise that they go on to a surveillance program. And, you know, that's going to be standard markers, imaging, chest x-rays. One caveat, if they do have a malignant transformed element in the, in the orchiectomy specimen, so, you know, any type of secondary malignant transformation, then I would at least talk to them about upfront RPLND per AUA guidelines. If they're a stage 1B, you know, this is an area where all options are observation, one cycle of BEP chemotherapy or RPLND are going to be on the table. And again, I think it's most important that we can comprehensively run through the patients, the risks and benefits of each approach. And I'll, I will, I really will try not to impart a bias on these patients. I try to present it to them. You know, ultimately your risk relapse is about 50%. If we go on surveillance, you know, we save you any treatment, but if you recur, largely you may require chemotherapy. However, some of those patients would be candidates for RPLND. I do have them see a medical oncologist as well if they're considering adjuvant treatment just between BEP chemotherapy. Now, if they've got like a 90% teratoma, I probably wouldn't push for adjuvant BEP chemotherapy, but I certainly would push for surgery as well. If they ultimately decide that they want to go on surveillance, let's just say, and they pop up a little node in the primary landing zone marker negative, in that case, nearly certainly I would say, hey, let's, uh, let's move on to surgery here. You know, chemotherapy is not going to be a great option because there's a real, real risk that we may end up double treating with, with chemotherapy and surgery. Mm -hmm. So it's nuanced, you know, it's, it's going to be looking at that orchiectomy pathology. It's going to be reviewing that CT scan yourself. And also with the multidisciplinary specialist, you know, if, if it's cystic, if it's in the landing zone, et cetera, these are all, you know, valuable bits of information. And with that, I would also say it's absolutely critical to look at your own scans. The number of times that people come in on testis cancer surveillance with positive nodes, very obvious that are read as unremarkable, no adenopathy is, is actually shocking. Yeah. Sometimes, like you said, sometimes those one centimeter uh, nodes are usually read or remarkable, but, but they're, they're, they weren't there before. So definitely, uh, I mean, have the patient have the, the old, all those imaging studies I give it to the radiologist to make the best decision. Yeah. And for a stage two patient, OJ, what I will do is let's just say they had, uh, you know, either they were diagnosed at stage two or they developed a metastasis on surveillance. What I'll typically do if they're electing surgery is schedule the surgery six to eight weeks out, repeat the imaging right before that. Okay. And if they've lost the metastases, obviously surgery is never going to help them. If the node is involuted which can happen again in not trivial percentages of the case, you can safely avoid it. And then if things have, you know, remained basically stable, you've kind of filtered out the patient that you're likely going to help with surgery. Okay. So let, let's talk about, uh, other situations, uh, uh partial orchiectomy, is there a role? I mean, I know in Europe, they're doing that for some cases. Are you doing some partial orchiectomies at, at your place or? Yeah. Yeah. So testis carrying sparing surgery does get a lot of attention and, you know, per the AUA guidelines, if you've got a normal contralateral testicle, 
a radical inguinal orchiectomy should be performed. Now, of course, you're going to have patients, you know, we see these not infrequently with bilateral tumors or they've got a um, solitary testicle. And these are, these are cases where absolutely you want to not just get it right, but get it perfect. So for starters, it's mandatory, in my opinion, to get a semen analysis and a baseline testosterone. If they're azospermic and they're hypogonadal, you're not really doing them any favors by doing a partial orchiectomy. Take it one step further, if they're azospermic and hypogonadal, that's the case where you want to have your infertility specialist there to actually do a sperm extraction at the time of orchiectomy. And we've, we've done that before. Now, let's say they've got some androgen production and they've got some evidence of spermatogenesis. So, of course, you want to cryopreserve. And then you really want to talk to the patient about, you know, what do they prioritize here? Do they prioritize androgen production and fertility preservation or do they prioritize oncologic control? So you have that conversation on the front and then you run through the various scenarios. All right. So let's just say that they do want to um, consider a partial orchiectomy. So this is going to be important that the tumor is, you know, less than about two centimeters. If it's on one of the poles or superficial under the capsule, that makes it a lot easier. And then you want to make sure that your GU pathologist is on standby, not just any Tom, Dick, and Harry. So what I will do is, you know, just like we initially talked about, deliver the test goal, and I'll make sure that the, the field is squared off. If you're concerned at all about being able to find the tumor, it's also not a bad idea to have your ultrasonographer on, on deck. I'll make a tunical incision and um, using loops, resect the mass, send it for frozen, and also take biopsies and, and close up the testicle at that point. And I'll put it on ice at that time as well. So you really want to make sure that they don't have any germ cell neoplasia in situ, and you, which can be a difficult intraoperative diagnosis. And then you also want to confirm that it's a testis cancer. So let's just say that it's a testis cancer with no GCNIS. Then you go ahead and proceed with your apexia, your squirrel support, so forth. Many times germ cell neoplasia in situ is difficult to diagnose on intraoperative sections, but if you've got negative margins and absence of germ cell neoplasia in situ, then you just go on a surveillance program, self-exams. I will typically get an ultrasound at three months, at six months, and then annually thereafter, if that's not necessarily guideline-directed care. If they do have germ cell neoplasia in situ, the risk of developing an invasive tumor is going to be right around 50%. So you can either give them adjuvant radiotherapy to mitigate that risk down to about 1% to 2%. Or you can observe them, allow them to be, you know, they have to know, hey, there's a real chance of developing a tumor. And if they're, for instance, trying to have a kid naturally, now would be the window to kind of try to do it. But the bottom line is, yes, you want to be familiar with this option. You know, doing a radical orchiectomy in a solitary tumor or doing bilateral orchiectomies is not a trivial decision. It's obviously an easier decision. But again, having the kind of clinical chops and the multidisciplinary team to make those decisions is important. I mean, and also a uh, partial orchiectomy is not, is not easy. Uh, you can have complications, you can have bleeding afterwards. Uh, you can have other problems that might help causing maybe more problems to the patient. So definitely have that conversation with them, but you're trying to preserve function. And that's absolutely, would, absolutely. Would be partial orchiectomy. Yeah. Uh, and even, even yeah. cryopreservation and assisted reproductive technology techniques, they're not cheap. You know, these are, these are young men. Yeah. And even if you cryopreserve, if they ultimately end up requiring something 
you know, pretty intensive. That can be $10,000. We take care of patients that are safe in the hospital in addition to our tertiary care center. And, you know, they're not going to go and spend $30,000 for, you know, IUI, et cetera. Yeah. So even pay, some patients can even pay for the preservation. So mm -hmm. men are yep. doing the, the other, the other stuff. So I had a patient, I don't remember when it was, but incidental finding, they call it, the Aureoli says that the ultrasound, he has a burnout tumor. I did a full workup to see, make sure there wasn't anything else. Eventually I inguinal or kicked him just to be safe. He came out like atrophy, didn't mention anything of cancer. How, how you, do you see those, this kind of patients? Yeah. So that's, that's tricky. You know, so you've got them worked up comprehensively with CT scan, chest, abdomen, pelvis. You've got their tumor markers and let's say everything's stone cold normal. Well, you're not going to be pretty sure, pretty confident in your radiologist that this is in fact a burnt out regressed tumor, which of course can happen. And whether that's the tumor outgrowing its blood supply or whether that's some type of immune response, it's not entirely clear. But, you know, going back to it, about 80 to 90% of people are going to have germ cell neoplasia in situ along with any tumor. So if you're stone cold convinced that this is a tumor and not some other imaging artifact, some resolved orchitis, you know, small infarct, some dilated reedy testes, you could do an orchiectomy and that would be a very, very conservative thing to do. Or you could, you know, go on a more a less in intensive intervention, such as starting out with serial ultrasounds, serial self-exams, and then generally spacing those apart. And again, explaining the, the idea that the patient might have drips on neoplasia in situ that ultimately develops into an invasive tumor. It's a very oncologically safe thing to do if you're stone cold sold. But you know, when that, when that testis comes back as no GCIS or anything, you know, good news is no cancer, bad news is it took your testicle. Being yeah, I, I think this patient was in the 60s, so he didn't care. Uh, sure. So it was easy. Definitely a 20-year-old with the same findings, more difficult. Without kids, more difficult. So, so, so let's say, so if I have a patient like that, would you say safer or better for the patient doing a serial ultrasound? I would. Okay. I would. I mean, this is a... a case also where you could consider a biopsy not done very commonly in the United States at all. In Europe, it's something that's a little bit more, more frequent. I personally think that's still overkill. I would start out with self-exams and, and imaging and just kind of start spacing those out over time. Good. So Didi, I know that you're doing a lot of research on testicular cancer. I will talk about that in a little bit. Anything else you want to add? I mean, anything important, I think we cover everything, but if there's something else that you want to mention about testicular cancer. Yeah. For the sake of completeness, you know, if the patients do have metastatic disease, it's important that they get appropriately staged. They receive an IGCCG risk stratification that during communication with the medical oncologist. And, you know, certainly at our institution, I think really dotting your I's, crossing your T's, you know, there's more and more data that ports are associated with the development of thromboembolic events. A lot of these patients are receiving oral anticoagulation at the onset of diagnosis, getting them safely through chemotherapy, assessing them properly afterwards. And then if they require post-chemo RPLMD, that of course falls squarely back in our wheelhouse. So I think it just highlights again, you want to have your patients managed by physicians that see this type of disease day in and day out. Dying of testis cancer really shouldn't happen, but equally as important, we don't want to 
harm these young cancer survivors for the rest of their lives with our decisions that we make if they're not just perfectly fine. And, um, you know, much of my research is actually focused on, on trying to really make sure we, we treat patients when they need to be treated and safely avoid treatment when they, when that can be done. And I'll, I'll maybe highlight one area that we've done quite a bit of work on, and these pertain to microRNAs. So thus far, as we all know, tumor markers are good, but they're not perfect. Say for instance, in seminomas, you know, HCG will only be elevated about 10 to 15% of the time. Over the last decade, there's been a body of work that showed that a series of microRNAs were uniquely present in testis tissue. And one step further, they can actually be measured in the blood. And suffice it to say, in the pre-orchiectomy setting, regardless of seminoma versus non-seminoma, regardless of a mediastinal tumor or a retroperitoneal tumor, regardless of a pediatric testis cancer adult, ovarian germ cell tumor, or male, these microRNAs are elevated about 90% of patients. So we uh, recently published our work in the um, Journal of Urology showing that the performance characteristics of these microRNAs drawn immediately prior to surgery, including in patients with solitary testicles, testis masses, bilateral tumors, and even post-chemotherapy orchiectomy patients correctly identified about 95% of patients that were likely to have residual cancer. So in the diagnostic area, this is going to be a game changer. We published another study where we checked the serum microRNA immediately prior to chemotherapy naive RPLND. These are going to be stage one and stage two patients. And suffice to say, the specificity and sensitivity were about 90%. So now instead of just a coin flip, hey, listen, you're a stage 1B, there's a 50% chance, we're really kind of individualizing care. And this be another tumor marker or, or, I mean, do you see eventually not doing tumor markers and only doing this? I think it'll be complimentary, Oche. I think, um, you know, say again, you have a patient with a pure seminoma on orchiectomy, but their AFP was 800. You know, the microRNA is not going to give you that histology specific information, but I do see it being a tumor marker. There's two large studies. We have both of those open here. We're in the process of opening up a study for patients with stage one disease and dictate adjuvant treatment based on microRNA status. But in terms of diagnosis, staging, monitoring, monitoring response to chemotherapy, and even surveillance, this is poised to be a game changer. And for patients, like we talk about small testicular mass that on a cubicle that we, we're not sure whether it's an actual mass or prior to doing a biopsy or, or the, the, the patient that I told you about the burnout tumor, will this be a, a will it have a place in that, those patients? Nearly certainly. And I can't tell you how many times in our tumor board, it's not, the microRNAs are not commercially available to make clinical decisions. Okay. This exact thing comes up, man, it would be nice to have a microRNA at this time. Okay. <laughs> okay. But yeah, that, that sounds, I mean, it sounds interesting. Like, like you're saying, game changer, definitely more, more tool for us to make better decisions, better safety for the patient. And like, like you mentioned, sometimes the decision that, that we make either might cure them from, from cancer, but we cripple them on the on other aspects of their lives. So definitely those tools that, that, that you're working on are, are, are going to be great for us. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, OJ. And I would just add. Most, if not all people that treat any reasonable uh, amount of testis cancer are more than happy to field questions, 
informal consults, formal consults, certainly with telehealth, that's been um, something that's exploded. And, you know, myself, I get a lot of e emails from, from colleagues, from people in the community and would be more than happy to, you know, help offer my two cents or, or present our, present any cases at our tumor boards. So uh, I would be happy to provide contact information for that as well. No, that's great. That's great. I mean, it's, it's good to hear from you guys, have your perspective so we don't lose hours. So, man. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, just sticking to the guidelines 101. Yeah, exactly. You know, getting your markers, getting your ultrasound, talking about sperm banking, talking about, you know, androgen deficiency, getting them plugged in with the PCP, talking about a prosthesis. This is squarely in our wheelhouse and, and you know, as it gets complex and, and nuanced, uh, it gets trickier, but this kind of stuff, we can absolutely do it. And like you mentioned, I mean, the AUA does a great job just putting out the guidelines. So, so it's already there. It's a ma matter of just following the prescription, the, 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 the step-by-step -step and you will do no harm. There you go. Yeah. I just, you know, again, leave it with these are young guys, testis cancers that you're responsible for the most life you're lost of any non-pediatric cancers. So we kind of. Many people think of these are, oh yeah, you know, they're, they're curable, no big deal. It's testis cancer. But as you mentioned, the opportunity to help these patients is profound and the opportunity to hurt them in the same breath with non-guideline directed care is also pretty, pretty real. Well, thank you, Didi. Uh, enjoy the weekend and we'll speak again soon. Awesome. Awesome. Happy New Year's. Thank you again for having me. Bye-bye.